Mr. Ken Moffat. Part 2, Volume 2 of the Exodus series, Mr. Moffat is... Professor Moffat is teaching us about the history of the Exodus. And we started last week, all the all the Sunday episodes last week were delayed because of the Super Bowl. But we are back at it. I'm not feeling too hot. But luckily for me, Ken's about to teach me about the Exodus. So Ken, how about you take it away? All right. Well, last week when we left off, we introduced the main players. Um, Moses and his lineage through <clears throat> his adopted stepmother um, who took him out of the river. That's where he got his name, Moses. Means to be drawn out. Uh, had Shepsut, his adopted stepmother. And then the other main player that we're going to look at just real briefly as the story unfolds would be his uh, adopted stepbrother, stepnephew, um, uh, uh, Tutmos III. And then he has a son, Amenhotep II, which most Egyptologists and archaeologists now believe was the pharaoh of the Exodus. This is who Moses will be going up as the various plagues unfold. And he is a cousin. Uh, and I don't, scripture doesn't tell us, but it's possible that Amenhotep knew of Moses because at one point Moses was a very high official, the next in line to be Pharaoh. And Amenhotep may have heard about him from his father, Tutmose III. It was Tutmose III who was Pharaoh at the time that Moses fled to Midian after killing the Egyptian. So here, after 40 years, Moses comes back as an 80-year-old man. God selects him and tells him, you're going back to Pharaoh, and this is what you're going to do. And we uh, sort of pick up the story in, in uh, Exodus chapter 7. And the Exodus story unfolds through chapter 7 through chapter 12. But it's not just about the plagues. It's about what God is doing to the gods of Egypt that are related to these plagues. And he tells Moses in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, that I'm going to do three things. Um, I'm going to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, number one, and I'm going to do this by great judgments. And he would do that in a way that the Egyptians shall know that he, Yahweh, God, is Lord. And these judgments that he's going to enact are going to be against the gods of judgment. I'm sorry, against the gods of Egypt. And it's very important that we understand this um, because he's going to teach not only the Egyptians a lesson, but also the, the Israelites. And you have to remember the Israelites, the children of Israel, the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and that's how they became the Israelites, had been down in Egypt for oh, several hundred years. And during this time, because they became inculcated with uh, just completely surrounded by the gods of Egypt and the Egyptian culture, that they tended to drift away from the religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers, their ancestors. They would become very idolatrous. They were had a multitude of gods and goddesses. Egyptologists believe that the Egyptians worshiped between anywhere between 80 and 100 main gods or main deities. They also had regional gods. They had village gods. They had household gods. They had gods that multiple. Um, uh, multi-tracked on top of each other. And we'll, we'll see this 
as it unfolds that there may have been three, four, five gods responsible for one thing. And Egypt and, um, the Egyptian religion of the ancient Egyptians is extremely complex. It really, really is complex. But each one of these plagues that God sent was a direct attack, a challenge to the various gods of Egypt. And he will show that these gods are nothing more than, uh, well, they're false gods, they're gods that you've drawn on walls, statues, and so on. They have absolutely no power. One of the interesting things is uh, found in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, uh, where Moses goes back to Pharaoh, and this is a, a, a saying that has been through years and years and years. People use it all the time. This is what the Lord, the God Israel, says, let my people go. And we hear that all the time. Uh-huh. And Pharaoh says, his response is, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, you have to picture Moses standing here before Amenhotep II, his, his way younger cousin. And um, Moses is probably thinking, okay, cousin. I'm going to introduce you to this God mm-hmm. and you're not going to like the meeting and you're not going to like the outcome. Yeah. And just as soon will you find out, you'll find out who this God is that you should obey him. So this is where we're beginning to unfold all of the plagues. Yeah. And so, but it's so the plagues are for the primary gods though. Cause I mean, if they have, you say 80 to a hundred and then you have your regional, your village, your household, do the plagues hit and then you said there's well there are several gods there can be several gods to one thing right so when the plagues hit is it that the plagues hit several um categories or themes and then by extension they challenge all the gods associated with that theme is that how they challenge all gods or are they only challenging are there a a handful of primary gods that the plagues are to challenge well, God will eventually expose them all mm-hmm. as as we might want to use in 21st century vernacular as mm-hmm. frauds, as mm-hmm. fakes. Uh, these these are created by the Egyptians to satisfy uh, certain things. The ancient Greeks also, you know, they were animus, which meant that um, this grove of olive trees these are sacred because they provide olives which are food they provide oil for medicinal etc and, and as well as food. this river is sacred because it provides water for the olive groves this is the way that the ancient world in a lot of respects looked at their various deities mm-hmm. they created them to fulfill a niche mm-hmm. and what god is going to do here is he is going to attack each one of the main gods but once again Within that main god, there are sub gods related to the same. Okay. Okay. The Nile River's got four or five that that all control different aspects of it. Okay. So it's like if you attack every senator, you're by default attacking every state and everything associated with each state. Okay. All right. So okay, yeah. top down. Okay, yeah. I got it. Okay. Let's continue. And, and last week, uh, we, we talked about the, the Egyptian concept within the religion of Ma'at and M-A uh, apostrophe A-T. Mm-hmm. And what this is, Ma'at was the, uh, an ancient Egyptian god, goddess of truth, justice, harmony, 
and and balance and she is depicted as an anthropomorphic and that means that you know you have this non-human being but they ascribe human characteristics to um this this human this statue if you will and she is shown as a, a winged woman uh, often in profile with an ostrich head or sometimes they just show the i'm sorry the ostrich feather and sometimes they just show the feather to represent this god and the the feather was an integral part of the weighing of the heart and soul ceremony afterlife as part of the ancient egyptian uh, religion and remember we talked about Maed being the how to hold things together that was pharaoh's job his primary job was to make sure that everything ran smoothly and that you didn't offend any of these 80 or 100 gods and by the way by the time they got done with the village gods the regional gods the household gods egyptologists believe that they came up with something like 1500 different various gods now can you imagine pharaoh's job is to hold all of this together. So that means you have got to come up with a way to please all of these gods. Yeah. And when God begins to unravel the Egyptian society, he's unraveling Ma'at, which means that Pharaoh, how are you gonna keep all this together? Yeah. This is the whole world unraveling around them. Yeah. Now the, the what was called the, uh, feather of truth in the afterlife and this is very interesting as it pertains to Amenhotep II because he was so proud and arrogant that the feather of truth was that literally what they believed was that you had the scales of justice so to speak and the feather was the weight and if your heart was wicked and evil it would tip the balance and if it did not weigh out you would not spend the afterlife in, in paradise with the gods oh. you are you're condemned so you had to be better than this feather that's yeah. the feather truth that was my aunt okay all right so the whole okay yeah so you expo expose the whole thing as a fraud so you're exposing like the the, the base i don't know how to word it um it's like if you take down the like the very like reserve currency of a nation or something like you're going to the very foundation of something to expose it, and, every, and everything else will unravel. It's much easier to just go after, or it's much simpler, maybe not easier, to go after the whatever is at the core, and everything right. else will follow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's essentially what God does, is by destroying this, he is deconstructing their entire society. Okay. Out of out of this concept of Ma'at, where everything had to be how you, held. How do you spell it again? Sorry, I'm looking it up. It's M A apostrophe A T. M A apostrophe A T. Okay, just making a note of it. All right, sorry. Continue. No, oh, that's fine. But that's the whole thing here. God is going to deconstruct their entire society, plague by plague by plague. Because remember, as we said at the outset, many of the gods they overlap. So you may have 80 to 100 primary deities, but there may be three or four of these pertaining to the Nile. And then you've got the, the, the goddess Osiris and so on, who is in charge of agriculture. But within that, who is in charge, the other gods that are in charge of uh, the It just, it gets complicated. It yeah. really, really does. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 
the same bureaucracy, right? It's just red tape. Pretty much, pretty <laughs> much. But one of the interesting things about this is when, when we look at God's attack on these uh, various gods, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, his attack on these various gods, Egypt was an agrarian society. I mean, it was, they, they were not herders and so on and so forth. They did have cattle and things, and we're going to touch on that in a little while. But primarily, they were an agrarian society. They grew wheat, they grew barley, they grew spelt, which is a very, very little tiny grain that's used to make um, broth or soups, kind of thicken it up, kind of like cornmeal. And the Egyptians, as an agrarian society, they would have seen locusts, they would have seen the biting insects and so on because of all the Nile and the marshes and so on that surrounded it. But what made these plagues unique is that the divine God intensified the plagues and through them, he did these plagues at his choosing, at his time whenever he wanted it to be done. And it's interesting how it unfolds in scripture that, and we'll get into this in a little bit, that it's just um, an attack, an attack, an attack, an attack, an attack. And it doesn't take place over a couple of days. This is a prolonged time. Yeah, I think the, they believe it was probably anywhere from seven to eight months because as scripture tells us that the wheat ripens now and then that was destroyed, the locusts, the hail, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Then the barley, well, that's all destroyed. Mm-hmm. The flax, all of these different things are destroyed once they come into uh, full bloom, mm-hmm. which um, really devastates the economy of the Egyptians. Uh, and it's also interesting that after the third plague, that God excludes the land of Goshen, which was where the Israelites lived. And they came through exactly as Moses tells Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. And that's what exactly is what what goes on to happen. Plague by plague by plague. It's not a surprise. Pharaoh knows it's coming, but he's just too arrogant to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a little more of a, it's a little more of a power move, right? It's not even that you need a sneak attack. You just say, right? That'd be like, like, how would you truly like demoralize a country? You wouldn't do a sneaky invasion. You would say, hey, uh, six months from today, we're going to invade your country. And your leader knows about it. And, and that's essentially. Yeah. Yep. And watch and, and watch and your leader not be able to protect the, you. That's exactly correct. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, Pharaoh was viewed as a god. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The incarnation of Yeah. God. Again, yeah. Very, a very important demoralization technique. It would be if we wanted to get the North Korean people to believe that Kim Jong-un was not a deity. What would we do? We would say, hey, we're going to invade you 10 months from tomorrow. He knows it's coming. Your God will protect you or he won't. And then we just steamroll him in 10 months. That's how you destroy an image. Okay. And it's, it's an important concept in the ancient world because of the, the the position of all these various deities that they played. They believed that the strength of the nation was embodied in their god and that their gods could protect them from whoever. They would take their gods into battle and so on and so forth. And the Israelites did the same thing with Yahweh once they get into the land of Canaan. Uh, we see that uh, in Jericho what God tells him to do with the Ark of the Covenant and so on. But here what we're going to see is that God de- is deconstructing and he's destroying all these gods. Um, they're like, wait a minute, and we're going to see that. 
that some of his court officials and even his magicians tell Pharaoh that there's nothing we can do about this. This guy is much more powerful than our gods. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah. All right. Setting the stage for, yeah, total total demoralization campaign. So the, the very first plague as recorded in scripture is um, it found in chapter 7, verse 19 through 20. It's the exodus uh, of Exodus where God turns the Nile River into blood. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember that Egypt is a desert community and its economy, its livelihood depend on the Nile. Its crops were irrigated by the Nile. Its fields depended on the fertile soil that were washed in by the river. The Nile was also the primary highway that they would transport goods back and from Upper Egypt to Lower Egypt. Now, real quickly, let's, uh, let's remember that Upper Egypt would be in the south because that's where the, the rainfall the, from the mountains would come down and it would flow. It's completely reversed to our thinking, yeah. but Lower Egypt is in the Delta region that flows into the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, Upper Egypt is to the south. Lower Egypt is to the north of Egypt. Just turn the globe. Use that as, yeah. Easiest thing to do. Um, but so the, the the highway for them would be, you know, like Interstate 80 that runs across the country. Um, it would be the Nile River. And they would ship goods up and down depending on where they were grown and so on and so forth. Uh, And so this is destroying their entire culture. Mm -hmm. So what happens to the lifeblood of the nation? Um, When the plague hits, it goes beyond, once again, just what happens to the river. Now, a lot of people are, I won't say a lot of people, but there are those that don't believe that it was actually blood. They will say that it was red algae, that it was um, silt. It was anything other than what scripture says it was. The scripture describes it as blood. But one of the interesting things that scripture tells us is that all of the water sources were affected, not just the river. Okay. You had pools over here that are not associated with the river. You had um, the water in uh, buckets in people's homes and so on. One of the Hebrew words that, that is used in here is that it was in uh, vessels. And what that means is okay. that the various gods of Egypt would be holding like a pan or a bowl or something, and the water in that bowl turned to blood. Okay. Okay. And so if it was a natural occurrence such as algae, how did it get into that bowl? How did it get into these buckets in these people's homes? That's the interesting thing about this. Okay. It's, it's, if you believe it, and I do, um, that that's exactly what Scripture says happened, and the Egyptians couldn't do anything about it. Okay. And once again, this was a terrible disaster. The their fish, major food source for the average Egyptian, um, they're all dead. Couldn't drink the water. You couldn't bathe. You couldn't do anything. Scripture tells us there's blood throughout the entire land. This catastrophe affected everybody. And it was not just the average individual Egyptian down there fishing. It went all the way up to Pharaoh. He had to have felt uh, the uh, effects mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. They were devastated. Mm-hmm. What God or gods was affected by this. Well, the the main god that was affected by this was his name was Kaum, uh, K-U-N-U-M. And he was usually represented 
as a male with a ram's head. And he was viewed as the guardian or the giver of the Nile River. Another god that was affected by this was Hapi, H-A-P-I. And Hapi was credited with, with the flood that brought the thousands of tons of um, silt or the the fresh new dirt that would be as as the river floods yeah you right regenerate the uh the farming areas of it and hoppy was also worked as worshiped as a god of the fishes uh god of the marshes god of the birds lord of the birds and the marshes lord of the river bringing vegetation um and and Hoppy was an androgynous figure that was depicted with a big belly, large drooping breast, wearing a loan cloth and a ceremonial beard. And let's not forget who else wore a ceremonial beard? Pharaoh. Pharaoh was considered a god. So was um, these gods of the Nile and so on. Now, Hoppy's, uh, some of her other charges, also included the crocodile gods, the frog goddesses, um, there was about a half dozen, and, and I'm not going to go through each one, but there was about a half dozen different gods associated with the Nile River alone. Mm-hmm. And the Nile, again, was considered the bloodstream. Yeah, the of, Yeah. The interesting thing about it, I was when I was, I was doing some research on this, and I'll just throw this out as a grain of salt because I, I don't necessarily think that I, that I subscribe to this as being accurate, but... Um, one of the sources that I read said that the reason God chose the Nile as the first um, plague was the fact that all of the Hebrew babies that were thrown into the Nile were drowned and or the crocodiles ate them and mm-hmm. the fish, etc., etc. Take that for what you want. Yeah. I think God did for the simple fact that um, that it was the main source of everything mm-hmm. for them outside of the, the sun god Ra. Yeah. But your entire life stream, your entire life blood, if you're a desert nation, depends on that river. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm gonna yeah. destroy the river. Yeah, it well yeah, it's it's also symbolic, right? If you took out the Soviet Union you'd go for the breadbasket, right? You know, it'd be like if in Vietnam we did in Ken for all the listeners, Ken was in Vietnam. It'd be like if you went specifically after rice patties or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, you get the right. It's like going after the Statue of Liberty. There's symbol, there's symbolism, but it's also right. The backbone. You'd go after New York and L.A. and Miami. Right. Big ports, airports. It's OK. I think yeah. I'm following. Yeah. And you think. About, yeah. Think about this for a minute. Here you have the average Egyptian who, who sees all of these gods everywhere. And here you see Pharaoh is seeing this unro- unfold. And the horror and the feeling of abandonment as they looked onto this formerly beautiful river, life-giving and so on. And now it's full of dead, stinking, rotting fish. Uh, it is a cesspool. Mm-hmm. And there's not a thing in the world anybody can do about it. And it also struck as, as the god of fishermen um, Hat Mihit, who was the god of fishermen and the god of fish. And now, once again, this god that is supposed to provide you with food in the fish, as well as this river, powerless, absolutely powerless. There were, there were nothing they can do about it. I guess in a sports analogy, you say they were a no-show. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. didn't, didn't show. Yeah, yeah, it, impotent. 
Yep, exactly what it was. Um, the, the second plague was uh, frogs. And this was interesting from the standpoint that the Egyptian country being that river and that marshland, the frogs were nothing new uh, to the Egyptians. There were plenty of them. But this plague, once again, was different because God multiplied the plagues into the probably billions. There were frogs every single place in their homes, in their uh, baking ovens, on their beds. You name it, they were frogs. And frogs were considered to be sacred by the Egyptians for a couple of reasons. Number one, they lived in the water, they lived out of the water. To the Egyptians, that's a pretty interesting thing. Mm -hmm. They can you know, kind of uh, do things. Um, and they were manifest by the goddess Haket. And this goddess, this particular goddess, was the goddess of birth and the wife of the creator god. And uh, she was depicted as, um, had a head of a frog and the body of a woman. So the Egyptians got very creative with some of this stuff. I often wonder, I often wonder as I was doing the research on this, how did they come up with this stuff? Who sat around and said, we need a, a god for the frogs or the god for the crocodiles? You, I don't know. You, I mean, I imagine it's probably easier when you don't have modern knowledge, right? There was probably a lot of things that were left that were still unexplained, right? Right now, it's, you know, there's no new lands to discover. Like, we're, you know, we're figuring out medicine. We've got physics pretty down pat. Back then, it was like, it was kind of a free-for-all. What's that? I don't know. Make up a god, right? And that's as good as explanation as I've ever heard. I don't know, yeah. Uh, and the interesting thing in Egypt is the gods um, developed over time. They, they had what was called the Old Kingdom and then the Intermediate Kingdom. And, and we're in the New Kingdom time, the 18th Dynasty. And they've got gods in the New Kingdom, the 18th Dynasty, that they did not have back here in the 12th Dynasty, the 11th Dynasty. So things have progressed. But, well, we need a god for this. We need a god for that. And it may be very well, as you said, as their knowledge increased, they have to have a way to explain it. Mm hmm that, that's a pretty good point. I had not thought of that, but it does make sense. Um, but here, here's the, the great irony of this. Heket was supposed to be the goddess uh, who controls birth, but in this plague, literally millions and millions of millions of frogs were overflowing in the land, and the frog birth rate was completely out of control. They were everywhere. And then the frogs, once they got out of the water, they couldn't go back in the water because it's blood. What do they do? They die. So now the Egyptians have to go around and, and literally, if they had uh, little, uh, what are those things called? The little uh, bobcats, they could go around and scoop up millions of frogs at a time. But they had to go around physically pick up all of these sacred dead gods, yeah. uh, frogs, yeah, which had kind of worked in their psyche. Aren't these guys gods? What are they doing? Yeah, it's a psyop psychological warfare That's absolutely what it is right it's it's a psyop it's yeah yeah so what would you but another sorry go on no no go ahead go ahead i'm gonna take a drink no i was just trying to think of like like gods like what would be another it'd be like if someone shredded up hundred dollar bills and sprinkled them all over a city from the air like, in a sense, like, those are gods, right? Those are the founding fathers, those are presidents, but it's also a crisp $100 bill. Imagine seeing $100 bills just shredded, like, a, going through, like, a like an office shredder. Like, 
imagine just those like that confetti everywhere. That would kind of be psychological because you'd be like, who is powerful enough to just shred money to create confetti? Again, it's kind of you're picking up your dead gods, right? But but we see and, and and scripture tells us that the very the first two plagues of the river turning to blood and the frogs that the the magicians of the pharaoh's magicians um, this is recorded in chapter seven verses twenty two and then chapter eight verses seven they were actually able through their their uh, black arts their uh, secret arts and so on they were able to create the illusion that they were too creating pools of blood Mm -hmm. and that they too were multiplying the frogs by the millions but by doing this they actually are making things worse instead of making things better you had compounded the problem of all these frogs by making um however many more so much so that in exodus chapter 8 pharaoh actually goes to moses and he said will you talk to your god and have him stop the frog plague Please, will you put a stop to that? And then Moses says to Pharaoh, sure, I'll do that. When would you like it to be done? So in other words, God's putting it back on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is saying, well, how about tomorrow? But in doing so, God is saying, I still control this and I will end it tomorrow. Because if Pharaoh had the power, he would have ended it right then and there. Mm-hmm. But he, he's like, okay, Moses, I want this. I want this stop tomorrow. So God is showing that he is, uh, you, you know, he is um, in, in charge of time. He's in charge of every aspect of this. And Pharaoh, once again, this is only the second plague, but you're powerless. Well, but the thing too is if the magicians had the power, why didn't they stop it? Well, again, it's because you're exposing them for fraudulence, right? A lot of analogies between... Uh, lot of analogies between this and um uh japan the end of world war ii we're gonna firebomb your cities you want us to stop just surrender okay here's a nuke on hiroshima just surrender here's a nuke on nagasaki it can stop if you surrender you surrender stops immediately everything stops immediately you are showing them godhood right you're showing them power it's, I mean, relative. I mean, but I mean, well, even I Japan. I mean, imagine it, n- nuclear weapons weren't a thing. I mean, that's how Congress found out about it is because it was on Hiroshima. So, I mean, it just is the, I mean, it's the sun. It's the power of God. I mean, a lot of, I just, I keep trying to put it in modern terms so I can kind of understand where, how it seemed to them. Well, and, 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 you know, if you can, you want to continue on with um, just real quickly, the Japan analogy, um, Haruhita was viewed as a god. Mm-hmm. But once again, mm-hmm. um, he was proven uh, to be, uh, what was it, the crims, uh, chrysanthemum throne or whatever it was. He was proven to be not a god. He was yeah. just a guy who happened to watch the Enola Gay drop over and drop some bombs. Okay, yeah. well, there's that city's gone. Let's. Yeah. You want to go for another one there, yeah. Hirohito? And they'd say, "Hey, surrender!" And Hirohito wouldn't say anything. So they'd start up the jets again, and they'd do it again and again and again. And it's, I mean, that's what General Leslie Groves, the head of Manhattan Project, was worried about. He was worried that LeMay was going to destroy every city in Japan, and then they wouldn't have anything to drop an A bomb on. 
that was just a concern because it was just it was so but again it was it was a it was a sign of of it was a demoralization campaign lemay yep. stated yep. something along the lines of they know that we can touch you anywhere in your nation on any day at any time you can do nothing all your emperor has to do well, fortunately they, yeah you know, yeah fortunately they didn't know we only had two bombs but that's very fortunate hey but that's not here nor there hey man you got to keep a poker face right percent power comes from the that's perception right. of power right so hey it yeah. all worked out so the third plague that um god visits upon the gods and egypt would be uh, found in exodus chapter 8 verses 16 and 17 it's, and it's either lice or gnats and here again the hebrew word is not clear because it can mean either of these type of uh, little vermin type things and the hebrew did not break it down into a specific um, type of insect but it was a, a gnat or a lice something that is just horrible and um, once again the uh, magicians tried to duplicate this one but on the third time they couldn't do it there was no way that they could uh, pull the wool over Pharaoh's eyes if you will now for those of us that live uh, on the Mississippi River out here in Illinois um, every spring uh, depending on how wet it is we have this infestation of gnats and i cannot tell you how horrible it is it is so bad that at times when i go out to into the field or my uh, shooting range or to deal with the horses or whatever or to just sit outside that i have to wear like mosquito net over my head they are that Jeez. it's just horrible and can you imagine the the billions of gnats and there's not a thing you can do you can't get away from them there's no off there's no raid there's no mosquito nets you are just constantly one of these numbers yeah and their magicians for some reason tried to duplicate it they couldn't but here again the gods that controlled those could not stop it mm -hmm. again yeah demoralization right it, it it yeah and it was so bad that they finally some of the magicians went to pharaoh and this is found in chapter 18 or chapter 8 verse 19 and they said this is the finger of god this is um he, moses's hebrew god doing this and there's nothing we can do about it but once again and i think it's interesting and telling that um the bible describes pharaoh as just being hard-hearted his heart gets harder and harder and harder now a lot of people will say well if you read through Exodus chapter 7 through 12, that it says that God hardened his heart. Well, but you have to understand what we're saying here is that Amenhotep II, he was already an arrogant, proud individual. So God is not doing something to him that he did not already do to himself. Mm -hmm. I'm prouder, I'm more arrogant, I'm stronger than the God of the Hebrews, and I'm not going to let him go. Mm -hmm. The backstory to this, and I think it's very interesting, is that one of the reasons he didn't want to let them go is it was free labor. Well, yeah. Here you have perhaps a million people, and you know, estimates say, well, there were 600,000 that left, but that was only you know uh, men and, and boys. But then you've got the women, you've got the elderly, the infirmed, and, and all of that. You know, I've seen estimates up to two million people. I'll say a million people. That's mm -hmm. still a million people of free labor. Who's going to build my monuments? Who's going to build this? Who's going to build my cities? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? They're all gone. Mm -hmm. But that's the backstory of why he did not want to lose that free labor. Mm -hmm. Plus, 
I'm not about to knuckle down to this God that I can't even see. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not going to take a knee. And he didn't for a while yet. But the the God that um, was specifically directed here is the God of Geb, G-E-B, and he was the God of the earth. And, you know, they gave offerings to Geb to bring forth the, the fruits and vegetables and so on. But all they got was for, for it was lice um, or gnats, misery, and so on. And, and this infant infestation could also be a slap at the Egyptian gods in general as they were not... Um, able to withstand it so what do they do they go invoke the egyptian god of medicinal healing his name is i'm hotep and he wasn't able to stop it hear this infestation okay geb you can't do anything about it i'm hotep the god of medicinal healing he can't stop it so even pharaoh once again who was considered a god could do nothing about it and he was inflicted by this but what does this show about Pharaoh? It shows his arrogance and the hubris that he's unwilling to yield to a God in order to save his nation and its and his people. And you have to just step back and think, okay, if I see my nations being destroyed and all I have to do is let these slaves go, is it worth it? But it was worth it more for him to hold on and see his nation being destroyed than it was to let these Hebrews go. Yeah. That's how invested they were in this. Well, yeah, I mean, if you, they see you as a god, I mean, again, you go back and it's it's very similar to Japan. It's, you know, you got to, to them at least, they've got a good thing going. So they're going to hold on. Oh, sure. Free labor. Yeah. Labor all they have to do, but you know the other aspect that was touched on this was the um, Egyptian priests, because now they have uh, this infestation, and we're going to see this a little bit later with some of the other diseases that they have, like the boils and so on. The priest had to be absolutely pure, absolutely clean before they could enter the temple. Uh, and you're seeing pictures of the hieroglyphs of the priests that are completely bald and everything. They had to completely shave their bodies totally before they could go into the temple to be presented before gods to, that would make them pure enough. That's why the priests did not eat fish. Fish were considered unclean. Hmm. So when you go back and you think the priests are like, well, so what the fish are dead? I don't care about that. I don't eat them anyway. You know, let them eat cake. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Mine. Yeah. So it, it's really, really interesting to, okay, I can't go into the temple to pray to my false gods to stop these because I'm infected by these vermin. So it's the catch-22 thing here. Mm -hmm. I'll give you that powerful. Why can't you go do it? Mm -hmm. And this is what God is showing. He is, uh, once again, he is unraveling them. <clears throat> we, we talked about Ma'at as being the uh, arbiter of control of all things working in harmony. Well, the counter to that, the counter God, they actually had a counter God. It yeah. was Set, S-E-T. Okay. And they were the ones they would battle for chaos or control. Sounds like Get Smart from the 1960s. Yeah. But that's exactly what it was. And here you see that, that God is deconstructing um, the Egyptian society. So the god of Be uh, Set is besting Ma'at, who was the god 
that was in investing in Pharaoh, your job to keep all this stuff straight. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we see all these gods being, uh, and once again, the irony is that the, that the priests can't go into the temples and so on and so forth because they, they're just covered with vermin mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. You just had back and kind of chuckle about this. Again, yeah, again, it's the emperor has no clothes. It's, it's total pull their pants down and throw tomatoes at them like you're demoralizing them, right? It's exactly correct. Exactly correct. And if that's not enough, the next plague, the fourth plague, is swarms of insects. And once again, that Hebrew word, um, we haven't found that it's specific enough to say what kind of swarming insects. Uh, but most scholars believe that it was flies or mosquitoes or perhaps a flying beetle. Now, the Egyptian worshipped uh, the scarab beetle, and it was a flying beetle. And actually, the head for each one of the pharaohs, um, they find them in their tombs on the wall paintings. They had like a little amulet with the, a beetle on it, and it would have their uh, throne name on it. It was like their little calling card type thing. And they have found this throughout Egypt. They've actually found some of them in uh, modern-day Israel in some of the excavation sites. It's like their, so it's like their, it's like their Twitter username. Oh, uh, yeah, pretty much, that's pretty the, much. That's their blue check mark, right? Yeah. The golden beetle. The golden beetle, the scarab beetle, yeah. But he, here's another interesting aspect to this. This is where God, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 20, 22 and 23, where he says, But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of insects will be there. So you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction. In other words, I'll set my people apart between my people and the and your people. And this will occur tomorrow. Once again, he's telling Pharaoh, this is when this is going to happen. It's not a guess. It's not it might happen. It's going to happen t- tomorrow. Yeah. So we're going to see forming insects in the land of Goshen. This is where God's people live. Mm-hmm. And so they show up. And they swarm and they make land just life just miserable. And the god of that is uh, Kefer, K E K A G P E R, and and he is the god of uh, the Egyptian god of creation or resurrection. He's associated with Ra, the sun mm-hmm. god, which Pharaoh is the incarnation of Ra. Uh, he is the insect god of rebirth. And he uh, is symbolized by that flying beetle. Now, why would you want a god to rebirth insects? I don't know, but this is Egyptian mindset at the time. Mm-hmm. But this, once again, is showing that the Egyptian gods are incapable of controlling the insect population. Um, and they, some of these are highly destructive, like the beetles. They'll actually gnaw through wood and, and things along these lines. But the supreme god, Amun, who is the god of the wind, should have been able to blow these things away, but he can't. So the true god, Yahweh, shows that all of these gods, once again, are powerless to stop all of these plagues that I'm throwing at your gods. Mm -hmm. And as you have pointed out, this has got to be so demoralizing for the uh, average Egyptian person who can, who's got who's got no say in the operation of his yeah. government, yeah, he's just sitting there taking it. I mean, if you if this point, if you'd have held a vote, 
um, it would have probably been, okay, Farrell, let him go. Mm-hmm. I don't get monuments out of this. I'm not getting a tomb out of this. I'm not getting all these funerary palaces that you guys are getting. All I'm getting is a hole in the ground when I die, mm-hmm. and that's it. Mm-hmm. And I'm tired of being bitten to death by all of these beetles and things because you won't let these people go who do me no good at all. Yeah, I don't have slaves. I don't get slave labor. Yeah. But that's right. There's uh, no reparations on my part. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, again, the Japanese bomb out the cities, destroy their food lines, their water lines, make it such hell. Yeah. And the emperor, who doesn't feel any of it, they purposely didn't bomb the palace, the emperor's palace, because they wanted him to be disconnected from the people. And they wanted the people to start resenting the emperor. How come he's not getting hit with any firebombs? All he has to do is, you know, surrender. And he won't do it. We're out here, you know, they're firebombing our families to death. We're burning alive in the streets in Tokyo. Emperor's up there just, right? He, I think he had a Rolls Royce. He would drive around the city with his armed guard. And people would just stare at him. Because they're like, who the hell is this guy? Why is he not just surrendering? And then... Totally disconnected. Yep. And then the emperor would go away, and at night you'd be able to start seeing, like, glinting. They used to say that... They said the fires from Tokyo were so strong, they would actually glint off the bottom of the silver-bellied B-29s. So you could see at night, emperor's going back to his palace, and on the horizon there's a thousand glinting things. As Richard Rhodes said... There's like a thousand throwing stars that you'd throw from the, the islands in the South Pacific and they would watch them come over at night and then they would just kill everyone. That's an interesting analogy because it, it plays into um, Japanese uh, culture. Yeah, a thousand throwing stars. The, the Shurikens, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it would it plays into a couple of the next um, uh, plagues that in, involve throwing dust, which becomes boils and so on. So um, how much time you got? We, got? we have seven more minutes for everybody listening. Uh, well, I guess privacy, I won't say what. I, I have to be out of here in the next seven minutes. So for everybody listening, um, we'll do seven more minutes, and then we'll continue volume three next Sunday. But until then, just just keep going. The the next plague was the uh, the fifth plague, and that's disease on the livestock. And that's not on Exodus uh uh, chapter 9 verse beginning verse 1 and this play was directed against domestic animals and here again the, the Lord said I will make a distinction between the animals of the Egyptians and the animals of, of the Israelites mm-hmm. no Israelite animal would be harmed as a result of this but the twist on this is Pharaoh's kind of now maybe getting a glimpse of this guy's real Yahweh is real my guys cannot stand up to him we have thrown everything we have at him and he just keeps on coming and matters get worse and worse and worse mm-hmm. my gods cannot stop it as a matter of fact my gods are being destroyed by this guy and we see that in chapter 7 verse 9 uh, i'm sorry chapter 9 verse 7 that pharaoh actually sends people into goshen to investigate did any of their cattle die? Mm-hmm. So he is now starting to believe that maybe this is in fact true. Maybe this is real. Yeah. Getting the picture. But his arrogance, once again, prevents him from stopping the onslaught. The bombing will continue, if you will. The plagues will continue. As long as you want it to, Pharaoh, you can stop at any time. But he mm-hmm. refuses. 
he refuses to do it. The interesting thing from a historical aspect, it, it, it uh, plays right into what Egyptologists and archaeologists have found and have written about Amenhotep II, that his arrogance um, was rivaled by none mm-hmm. uh, in the hubris of Hitler sure. or some past presidents. But um, the point being is that I'm not giving up. Sure. I'm not giving up. Mm-hmm. So. And the plagues are, again, creating an economic disaster. But like all detached leaders and presidents and pirates and tyrants and so on, they still get theirs. Yeah. Pharaoh's still going to get his. I've got mine. I've got mine. But the average Egyptian that is feeling the heat on this, um, they're taking the head. You could say that like, you could say COVID would be a modern day plague, right? all the millionaire congressmen and women, like their lives aren't affected. They can still do everything they want. They still have private planes and uh, secret service, but it's everyone that has to sit at home and wear a mask. They don't care, they're, they're still getting theirs, right? And so what you do is mm-hmm. you bring the people up to a frenzy, a boiling point of hysteria. And it would be like, mm-hmm. imagine if right now God was like, hey, Congress, you can get rid of COVID like that. You just tell me when. Now imagine all the people are saying, just do it. Just get rid of it. Get, get, so now you're getting your people to turn on you. Well, and one of the interesting things about this, uh, these plagues, the cumulative effect, uh, it, it um, their food supply, their transportation, their military capability. Let's let's go back real quickly to Tutmos uh, III. Um, he was considered perhaps the greatest pharaoh ever in the history of Egypt, certainly in the 18th dynasty. He was the one that uh, had ships sent off to the um, Egyptian uh, version of West Point to learn about the military to get him out of the way. But when he came back, he was a Douglas MacArthur and a Chester Nimitz all rolled into one. Mm-hmm. And he expanded the borders of Egypt up to the Euphrates River. I mean, that is up into Mesopotamia. And he was a very, very powerful when he left, when he died, and Amenhotep II took over as Pharaoh, his son took over as Pharaoh, Egypt was considered the most powerful nation in the world. Okay. And now we're seeing, once again, the military capability, the farming capability, economic goods that are produced by the livestock, et cetera, et cetera. But still Pharaoh can continually let it, it uh, be destroyed because of his arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the things that are really going to be hit hard here is the cattle, because Egypt not only valued their cattle because they, they did farming with them and fertilizer, et cetera, et cetera, but one of their gods was the Apis bull, A-P-I-S, and uh, they worshiped this animal. When it died, they used to uh, hold a ceremony like they did for Pharaoh. That's how um, they viewed this bull. Um he was big, he was strong, he was virile, and he, so he's got to be a god. And mm-hmm. so we're going to name it the Apis Bull. If you remember the story of the the golden calf mm-hmm. the Egyptians, that, that was the Apis Bull. That's mm-hmm. found in Exodus chapters 32 through 34. They, um, children of Israel were finally let go. They make it through the Reed Sea. They're out there on the... Um, the um, desert and Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to speak to God and he's gone for a couple of days and 
the people began to freak out. Where's our leader? And then the cry goes out, make for us a God, make for us a God. This is where the golden calf comes in. And what was the golden calf the uh, emblem of? The apis bull that they had known back in Egypt. Okay. Um, so it's, as we know, and we said at the outset, a lot of times the they were so been in bondage for so long that they began to lose touch with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of their forefathers, because it was not being taught to them uh, on a wholesale uh, whole scale level. And the Egyptian gods, just like our culture, mm-hmm. I mean, you look it up today, one of the gods that we worship, professional sports, movie stars, politicians, athletes, you name it. The vast majority of our people, uh, you know, we used to be a Christian nation that you can say, well, 80 percent. Now it's down. I think it's less than 50 percent and it's getting less and less and less because we have more time to spend. We have more money to spend on anything other than what the real priorities are. Mm -hmm. And um, God is showing our nation, whether we like it or not, that he is God. And we're turning away Um, politicians. We don't need to worship this God. We've got a God of President Biden or Speaker Pelosi. We've got all these different gods. You people just sit back, shut up, and watch us act. Yeah. And God is saying, okay, that's what you want. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, I got as I told you beforehand, I got I got to go real quick. So, Mr. Ken Moff will be back next Sunday for part three. He will. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, Ken. I'll send you a link when this is up. Oh, and send me the link. All right, the, excellent. Send me the link to the blog, um, and I'll put the blog in the description and sticky in the top comment. Are you talking about the first one? Yeah, yeah. You sent me an email. You said some people might be interested in the blog. Correct. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, send me a link to that. Gotcha. I'll put it in the description in the top comment. Okay. All right. Very good. All right, Ken. God bless. Thank you very much. And, uh, I'll text you. I'll text you when it's up. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. Have a good one.